All right, welcome back to the 48th episode of the Startwell podcast. Once again, I'm Kasim Virgie in studio here on King Street West at Startwell, and today joined by a Torontonian that has a very interesting story, one that is uh, hopefully quite nourishing to our listeners, our audience, excuse the pun. Uh, he is a chef and a, I don't know, we're going to get into it, entrepreneur. More like a philanthropic chef, but we can leave it at that. There you go. I like that. Uh, and uh, and it's Jagger Gordon from Feed It Forward. Welcome to the studio. Well, I appreciate you. Thanks a lot. Pleasure to have you here. And um, you are the first, you know, you're not the first food guy to be in the studio. We've had growers. We've had grocers. Uh, but we haven't had anyone uh, who, uh, who handles food in that way and prepares food. So let's... Uh, let's talk let's let's backtrack okay like give me your your kind of like quick backstory on how you became a chef right you know as a child I didn't have the structure at home where I had a full fridge or a cupboard full of food so I relied on going to my neighbor's house where he always had five boxes of cereal and things to choose from on a Saturday morning with cartoons that were in color and uh, so having that opportunity gave me um, you know the excitement and through my childhood, I moved progressively fast in the uh, the ranks from military school and on to find uh, you know some grounding as my parents were never around. As I lost my father, then I lost my mother. Having that said, you know through community I relied on and uh, being raised in Montreal, then moved to Florida. I got to live through two hurricanes, one of them Hugo and Andrew. Oh and my God. Losing my whole community to one at a young age, I got to step up to see how community pulls together to let alone give provisions, but food and such. Mm -hmm. So that opened my eyes. And then from moving around the world through different careers, I ended up here in Toronto. And Toronto... And that was when? When did you move here? mm, 19, I believe, 92. Okay. And I uh, was on a security contract. So I went to private security and I was a, you know, I was a target for many people around the world. And my ego just followed around with me. And my last contract uh, brought me back to Toronto or brought me to Toronto. Met a wonderful woman who was 10 years older than I was. And she, uh, we had a child together. It didn't work out too well. So I became a single father. Wow. And my daughter, who's now 27 years old, uh, is my best friend. So... That's my backstory, you know, and as my daughter was growing up here in Toronto, uh, we ran into the same scenario, but unfortunately we had five boxes of cereal in our, in our cupboards and her friends didn't have it. So one side of the street had the wealth and one, the other side of the street didn't. Mm. And so one morning I woke up as it was my day off, sending my daughter off to her friend's house to have a little sleepover. I heard a bunch of little giggling girls in my living room at I think 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. it'd be. Coming downstairs, you know, I asked, babe, you know, this is my day off. I'm supposed to be sleeping in. Why are you guys here? And she goes, Dad, you know, um, the, the, her friend's name and her two sisters, uh, we had a sleepover and we went into the fridge for breakfast and there was nothing there. So that's what woke up my, uh, my story. And my story was I went straight to the school and I said, if there's any food assistance or programs, let's just open a door and see how we can do this. And then I just said, wow, you know. My passion is food. Like I always love to cook. I always entertain with cooking. We cook here and we eat every day. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I went to culinary school. So where'd you go? I went to George Brown. Okay. And then I went to Lyas in college. But George Brown was a really special place where I got to meet some great chefs that instructed me at an older age to Had they uh, did they have the restaurant at that point? Uh yeah. They just started that down. Okay. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. But uh having that said, you know, being inspired by these chefs, I just wanted to have a little more sense of traveling with my food. So I went and packed up my bags with my daughter after my culinary school, and we just went staging around the world. What? Got That's to, amazing. Yeah, and, and got, so how, how young was she when you guys hit the road? Oh, five. Yeah, because my daughter's four and a half, so that's about now in my brain. Wow. Yeah. And That's uh, fun. That's went, a fun age. got to learn my Indian cuisine. I got to learn my Thai cuisine. Like I started specializing in unique flavor profiles and uh, bringing my masalas back to... Toronto, uh-huh. where I opened up my first catering company. And from there, I started seeing the copious amounts of food being wasted through my company. And I just wanted to do something about it. And so I did my first pop-up in the Trinity Bell Woods. Mm-hmm. And that was 1994, mm-hmm. or 2004, sorry. 2000. No, excuse me, I'm, I'm the 
I'm all what decade are we in? Yeah, right. 2014. Okay. okay. Uh, that's where it all came to, 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 uh, to Still light. Still is a while ago, like eight years ago now, which doesn't sound like it made, makes well, sense. Well, right? this is where the philanthropic part yeah. came into uh, being a chef. Uh, I start from seeing the waste. And then we did this pop-up on Thanksgiving, and a few hundred people showed up looking for a meal. And then I, when I saw women and children in hand uh, humbly asking for you know a, a meal, I was mm-hmm. like, well... I'm not alone in this world with the food waste and maybe we just need to collectively collaborate and figure out how it can be done. So that's when I just put my thoughts together and we opened up a pay what you can free uh, restaurant called the soup bar at Dundas and Bathurst. That was the beginning of everything. Hmm. I got to see, um, I, the so this was out of pocket. Like you, you everything. rented a space, Yeah, you built out the kitchen, I'm guessing. Yeah. Everything was, you know what? Yes. Everything was done out of pocket, but that's not it. Food food was an abundance that, yeah. of waste, and I wanted to utilize it. But what got the message out was the media, social media. The media picked up on the fact that you're handing out free food. Now, it wasn't just free food. It was rescue food. And that was my new term. You know, um, Rescuing food and getting the message out, everyone has food that needs to be rescued in the people started coming to me and saying, we have so much for you. And this is where the restaurant came to light. Feeding a few hundred people a day um, gave me the inspiration. This means ingredients or finished food, like people's leftovers? No. So leftovers, so let's, yeah, you know, it's something we should talk about. Here in Canada, we have what's called the Good Samaritans Act 94, which means that there's any food in good standing that it, it can be donated without liability. Having that said, um, there's a lot of companies out there that says we can't donate our food because of the expiries, the ultimate freshness. Yeah, everyone's worried about. We'll get sued, yeah, but right. that's when I put my started putting my foot in the door to all the big corporations and saying, "Well, there's actually a law that protects you on this." Mm-hmm. So, Whole Foods was my first uh, contributor. Um, then we went into the bread companies, and then we just moved into farming. That's pre-expiry food that that they were donating, or like day old bread and all sorts of stuff. Why do you, here's, here's the tip of the iceberg on this one. So Whole Foods has a policy that three days prior to their optimal freshness state, they destroy everything. They destroy it. So if it being a packaged uh, uh, head of lettuce or tomatoes or whatever it be, and, and if it's three days prior to its date, they will destroy it no matter what it looks like. Now, also keep in mind, when you have a packaged uh, let's say a sense of packaged a bunch of grapes and these grapes have one little fuzzy grape in there. They'll destroy the whole package. Hmm. Or if you have a bag full of uh, tomatoes and one tomato goes amiss, they can't take the tomato out and sell the bag by its weight because it's missing it's that weight. So they destroy it all. Multiplying that into the farming aspect, um, the tractor trailer loads that come across the border. If a tractor trailer load was held at the border for an extra day, that means that product probably will be not ready for market or it has expired itself too before it gets onto market. So that's where we came in to start rescuing the stuff at the soup bar. The soup bar progressively grew too fast for me from the media aspect. It, it was just... It like lineups. Every, People were... That too, but the country, just the world wanted to know how to replicate it. Um, so I said, this has to be go a little bigger. This is where I saved up enough money out of my own pocket through my catering as a social enterprise. I opened up the uh, first pay what you can free grocery store. Mm-hmm. Now this grocery store rests and lays right now into the junction where we feed a few hundred people a day. And it's, uh, it, it's pretty amazing to walk into a store with dignity and shop and being able to take what you need. If you can't afford it, then we have a point system that we've uh, established. Or if you are socially responsible, you donate what you want mm-hmm. to help another. And that's basically two of the 13 programs I've created when it comes to food rescue. Two of the 13 programs. Mm-hmm. Wow. So as you got digging into this, what? I mean, as a chef also now, once you tooled up your knowledge on kind of like technique and and what you can actually do with ingredients, yeah, it kind of gets scary when you start looking at how much gets wasted because there's like potentially so many delicious things that are just like not born and people eating bad crap, you know, in substitution uh, because of the way that like, I would guess the, the conventional means of feeding people who can't afford to walk into a 
Whole Foods and buy stuff. Wow. You know, like canned food. That's right. And uh, and and so yeah, there's a million ways you can you can start getting excited about this stuff. Well, not to interrupt, but that's where the excitement came with me knowing that my store is an abundance of organic products where people can just show up and uh, take what they need for a healthier way. Because that theory of the healthy stomach is a healthy mind. Mm-hmm. And um, just to transition a little further, when I created this soup bar concept, it worked for a year or two. And the Scholastic Systems looking into it where we established the soup bar as a brick and mortar into the uh, colleges of Humber. So cool. Yeah. And that was really amazing where I, I started having this class where I was able to teach sustainability to the students and faculty where people can obtain the following day with the products that we've rescued from the campus into nutritionally balanced meals that uh, fed over a couple hundred people again daily. So there's just this win-win scenario. It's just about sending the message out, being able to describe and talk about the, the amount of waste that comes from our own homes and from the industry. I mean, 58% of all food that's manufactured here in Canada alone gets destroyed before it gets to market. Now, and yet we have people going hungry. That can feed world hunger times three annually, the mm-hmm. waste that comes from our own uh, country. It's, it's, a, it's a really sad number. And here in Toronto, we have one in seven families, if not less now, that are struggling with food insecurities. And so we have to figure out how, how to... How do we tackle this on? Mm-hmm. Uh, because through Feed It Forward, which is the name of my company, we I did all this without funding. I now have over 2,900 volunteers registered in my program that run our own farms, our logistics, our warehousing, our catering operations, our restaurants, our, our grocery stores, and food manufacturing. So I've obtained great uh, crew members, that team leaders that just want to see the purpose uh, come alive and thrive. Mm-hmm. But it's hard as a one-man team. Oh, yeah. Because... Preach on, brother. But you know what it is? I've, I've always been a bootstrap kind of entrepreneur. And I mean, there's so many problems with that approach, right? Is mm-hmm. that it's tough to it's tough to allocate cash flow, especially if you're like a, a highly efficient person who's doing so many jobs yeah. in a way. Uh, to delegate, relegate, you know, and remove yourself from the process as well as, you know, spend money. Yeah, I'm too passionately in, engaged. And yeah. That's my problem. And that's what people hold me accountable. Like, it's like they go, why? Why would you do this? And I'm going, well, if I make $2 and I know $1 I can survive off and I know that one extra dollar instead of buying something that's very lavish to myself or so to someone else that's near me, I could feed maybe 10 people with it. So I've taken that, and I've also stated that not only in my own backyards here in Canada, but the world needs to, to feel what I, the impact that I can create. Mm-hmm. And that's where I took feet of forward around the world. You know, from I'll give you an example when we had the Miami Dade sur, uh, surf colla- uh, Miami Dade um, Surfside collapse when the building collapsed. I took the lead as the executive chef to uh, feed the the world crews that came in to assist and all the victims' families and such. And that opened my eyes in devastation, um, bringing myself back to Florida and knowing that I lived through a hurricane and such, but this was right. different. This touched me differently because of death, I should say, and people um, you know, need that support. But what brought me to the other parts of the world, like Ukraine, mm. where I just recently traveled to and I was there in the trenches, uh, in the war zones itself. In the last few months. Yeah. Well, a few months ago. Yeah. And it's because it's been going on for quite some time. It's crazy, almost a year so now. So I, right? I worked with World Central Kitchen with uh, Chef Jose and Andres. Jose Andre. Yeah. yeah. Did, uh, did the, the Central Kitchen thing. Um, I just felt I needed to do a little more uh, because, you know, I'm independent and there's no controlling me. Right. So I decided to go from where they were stationed in Poland. I went into the Ukraine itself, and that's when everything changed for me. So I geared up with the whole team. Uh, we were all Kevlar'd up. Well, I was with a medical supply team where we recruited restaurants, and then we started doing provisions and literally finding finding volunteer uh, drivers. And we put everything together, and we started feeding tens of thousands of people in multi multiple locations. Uh, right into the war zones. Okay. So our I technically wasn't supposed to travel into any hot zones, but um, I I pushed my boundaries and I took unnecessary risks. 
and I mean unnecessary risk, where we traveled at very different rates of speeds of speed of light and Godspeed to get into locations where there are bombardments. Everything's done by infantry, and it's such a uh, coward war, I would say, because it's pushed by a button, mm-hmm. by a drone, and uh, it's it's a faceless war. Yeah, ordnance coming out of nowhere. And, and there's people on the ground dying, and they're like, wait, no one killed me. And it's just a machine not, killed me. It's just not even people. Yeah. It's children. So I'm in the trenches with these children that are protecting their own villages. They're wearing flip-flops. Now, flip-flops holding a Kalashnikov, and I, without helmet, without Kevlar, and I'm mm. going, where are your boots? So the analogy of that would be, it's like, oh, well, you know, there's no Canadian Tire down the street. Or there's no Mark's Warehouse, right? right? So right. the theory that they gave to me, this is a little 17-year-old telling me, well, when I find a dead soldier, I'll take the boots off of him. Right. right. So the best side that I could have done and do is create food and make sure those bellies are warm while they protect their, their grandparents. Mm-hmm. Because no man, not one man was able to leave that country and still isn't. So that was just part of the idea of bringing food to different countries. But then I created a free food app, and that's what I brought there so I could share food around the world. It's like a beacon. It's like the bat signal for where food can be. So if a babushka made a big bowl of bushka and she wanted to share it with her, with her fellow citizens, she would take a picture of it. It would upload and post uh, where it was and when it, when it could be received and it's a way of communicating um, in an easy way, I should say, for people to get free food. So as a user, you post your excess and you say this is available at this location yeah. and you offer it to people to come to get it. Yeah, like a, even to the point where it would be a, a harvesting off of a tree that's blooming. So an avocado or mango tree being in Central America, it's in Spanish also, mm-hmm. where I brought it there just so people can harvest and share the wealth of the fruits of nectars of uh, Mother Earth. So. So in the process of, of, this must have been something you were planning for for a while, to look into how to create such an app. Yeah. Um, like, it just runs like everything else in my mind continuously. Yeah, like a good idea that's kind of like you're thinking more on as time goes on and you find the people that can help you put it together. Yeah. Uh, and then how how did you roll that out or how is it being rolled out? How are you promoting it? To I'm it? not. Okay. So it's organic. I, like people are yeah, discovering it. Yeah, it's organic. It. Well, I'm just rolling with it because I, that's where I, I'm weak at. You know, I'm really good at finding creative ways to utilize food, rescue it, put it back onto the tables of millions of people. I think we're almost at 2 million people that I've served since. And um, I just don't have the financing or the creativity sense of how to promote it yet. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot – a lot of great like-minded people that surround me, but don't that I could utilize, I, I guess, but never had the asks. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is well, it's difficult when you're running, right? Mm-hmm. To like stop and think of of how to kind of build that promotional vehicle and the marketing around things and raising exposure to the issue at, or the solutions to the issues mm-hmm. as well. Um, so hopefully through this episode, there'll be a little bit of kind of, you know, if any of our audience are, are particularly inspired to get in touch, we'll, we'll drop the contacts in the post. Um, but the app's interesting because it's a problem that we've been thinking about for five years here. Uh, whenever we have catering on campus, which is now like every single meeting that happens, that's a full day meeting. Yeah. The excess is typically going to be two X what was eaten. Right. You know? So you end up with like when you've got a 30-person meeting and you've got like 15 full meals. That's right. Uh, and the inevitable thing is the host of the meeting is going to be like, take it down if they have any effort, down to our front desk. And, get, you know, our front desk person or our concierge or barista is like, here's a bunch of meals, you know, happy birthday. And they're like, well, someone else just did that <laughs> three minutes ago. I've got so much food to get rid of. And they're always calling around the shelters and stuff. And they're like, we can't take it. We can't take it. Yeah. No one will take responsibility for the food. But then how do you distribute it? So this is quite compelling. How, how is the app working out in Toronto? Well, it's slowly working. I mean, we utilize it. Um, whoever takes initiative to share and that care, uh, make that happen. You know, it's also just not necessarily just sharing the food. It's about eliminating that food waste because, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's great that the reception is or everyone got received all that food that was an abundance of our leftovers. But it's like it is overwhelming. And it's disappointing, too, when you think, oh, a shelter or a food bank can take this. You know, like you're, you're inspired and, and you're expressing that, oh, what do you mean you can't take it? Mm-hmm. So that disappointment sets in and then that leaves little 
bitter taste in one's mouth because knowing that I have to throw all this food out. So this is where the app comes in and it gives people that opportunity. Now, when and how it gets popular, well, that's a different story. That's where teamwork comes to make that dream work. So right, yeah. it'll happen one day. I, I just say or things happen organically and there's a time and place such as now right here mm-hmm. uh, why things happen. And so I guess this is the moment where we discuss and say, if you're out there and you know anything more than I do, please help. Yeah. No, definitely. I, I, I think it's it's super interesting. There's definitely enough people that I can, I'll connect you with after this uh, that can help pick it up in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, definitely people listening and watching to this episode that I think, you know, we have to invite to to help promote the use of this app. I mean, this is sort of something that, I don't know, I, I kind of like this is a weird brain fart, but for a while I've been kind of very... Um, uh, through the pandemic, especially, I've had a number of conversations with people, you know, critically looking at the composure of our uh, digital society in Canada. We're one of the first countries in the world to have almost ubiquitous high-speed internet, right? Going back to the 90s, like the late 90s. By 2000, almost every urban house had access, whether they bought it or not, because, of course, we have monopolies in telecom. But we had this ridiculous infrastructure for communication, Yet our government hasn't caught on to enable digital services kind of fast enough and quick enough in terms of the social services side of things. We really haven't had any, unfortunately, like a digital citizenship program, digital communication that's like a representative government where people, citizens can kind of interact with each other in a non-commercial Facebook, you know? Yeah. and something like that would, would definitely enable this kind of communication of, of values and the expression of them and sharing the sharing economy like so much more. So it is kind of difficult because if you're doing any social venture to help people in this way, it's almost like you, you feel sometimes like you're competing against commercial entities for a non-profit way to help people. Right. And it's like, I don't have advertising money. Like, why should I compete against someone with, you know, with anyone really to just help people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's difficult. That's why it's cool to feature people that are from Toronto that are like particularly, you know, doing local projects, any other project outside of the world, whatever. But serendipity always comes out of these episodes. Mm -hmm. Someone will watch it and be like, and I'm always surprised. Someone will reference something that I said in one of the podcasts and be like, did I say that? I I don't remember. Um, so oh, interesting. So now I'll be re- analyzing what, what did I say or what did I did not say? Like, there's so many things I'm sure I would love to say more, but that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get you. Um, I'm really interested in this kind of conviction that you have uh, and how you've communicated it with others that share that conviction to like, you know, have uh, people not go hungry when they don't have to. Right. So are there any particular stories you could tell, maybe even from this recent experience in, in the Ukraine of how other people, how you were maybe even felt comfortable leaving then uh, and seeing people pick up the mantle? Wow. Yeah. Mm. Well, first and foremost, when I went into Ukraine thinking I was uh, knives blazed, like I was just, I was ready to- We're going to do this. We're going to start like, up the kitchens. We're going to get this going. But- what I ran into, the reality was, is every air raid that came about, we had to turn off the gas, turn off the lights, however it being, go into our, our shelters. And knowing myself, I'm here, I'm wearing, you know, I was privileged enough to outfit myself with like $13,000 worth of protective gear while mm-hmm. the, my sous chef or my cooks next to me are wearing shorts or or just a chemise. Like it's just, it's just it blew my mind thinking that here I feel... I'm protecting myself, but I can't protect them. Mm-hmm. And of course, everything takes funding because everyone requested, oh, we need help. We need we need products. We need medical. We need food. And then I'm scratching my own pockets going, how can I do this? And of course, nothing's sustainable. Mm-hmm. I just have this passion and urge to help and create and put it out there. And this is where it came down to with the app and stuff like that, where if I can help one person with something that I've created, then I've no I've done, done my job. Mm-hmm. But how brilliant would it be if I could help a hundred? So, being there um, as I fed thousands of people, I really did inspire the locals as I would have done here, I guess, or anywhere else, because they saw the drive from someone who comes from the they thought I was representing Canada itself, and it was pretty right. cool to hear the soldiers. Unfortunately, I won't say soldiers, the civilians that were protecting their yeah right their townships. 
Um, the whole country has become militarized. They are. Out of necessity. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, computer programmers holding up weapons now. Long story short. But, uh, you know, being able to leave and give and create a program through Feet of Ford, it, it's still initialized there, which is great. It just takes funding. And mm-hmm. that's where it really bothers me because you think, oh, well, people will listen. People will understand. But I never really had the asks. Now... Uh, I mean, you get to see a lot of these celebrities. You get to see all these great people going in and making their appearances and stuff and doing the clout aspects of things. But my world, it's different. I'd rather just see people put their money where their mouth is and uh, help support programs that are already initialized there because there are so many civilians and people working hard just to help another. Mm-hmm. So creating the Feed of Ford program um, – just takes funding out of my pocket for it to continuously go. Uh, the hardest part is, is when you lose a vehicle or when you lose, um, you lose your volunteers to, to death. Mm-hmm. And I had to face that reality too. Why, while you were there? While I was there and while I've been away. Wow. And that's really hard on you because you think, wow, that could have been me. Right. And, it, and it, it, yeah, that, so having, <laughs> it would have been me. Um, yeah. But what do you do? My, so <clears throat> all I'm telling myself is I, I need to get back down there. Mm. I tell myself I had a passion, but I know that I can do more here now. Sure. Uh, but I technically, I tell myself, well, I did so much while I was there because I had the people there with me and I was able to see where my last meal went and I was able to be part of it all. And from here, I feel my hands are tied because logistic wise, I have, you know, I have a truckload of protein bars and, uh, water water wipes, which are baby wipes. For and I'll give you an example. Hmm. Imagine being in in any little village without running water or or electricity, and you have to use the washroom. Toilet paper doesn't grow on trees there. Mm-hmm. You can't go to a corner. There are no corner stores to buy toilet paper, so they're using whatever they can have to clean themselves mm-hmm. without running water. Yeah. So what I what I have now is I have truckloads of these water wipes. I have. Uh, you know, food and protein bars. I just want to ship down there, but the price of shipping has and uh, has increased. Isn't that a crazy thing? And let alone the pirates, right? And I, I'll say that very discreetly. And that's why I like going down there to watch my product get where it needs to get, because unfortunately, people it just never makes it there. Yeah, corruption. Every so when we took our convoys of food to the furthest locations in to the borderlines. <clears throat> I think I went through one trip. We drove 18 hours straight back and forth. Uh, it was a night mission for us to drop off. And uh, the every checkpoint, Ukrainian checkpoint, mm-hmm. um, there were villagers. So they weren't trained, and some of them have been trained previously. But the thing is, is there's a lot of corruption in that way where they would take something off that truck. So by right. the time I get yeah. to the end you result, have to pay your fee to I'm get already half full. Yeah. Right. So I found a really good way to uh, to appease everyone, and that's buy every cigarette available. <laughs> so I think I had over a hundred cartons of cigarettes. I mean, they were a dollar a pack, so it was a right. great deal. Right. And I'll just save hand, the food, give the cigarettes. just hand off a carton of cigarettes to each checkpoint, and we were good to go. So it was pretty pretty interesting to see that dynamic in a war zone. But leaving from there, um, what I would only wish is for the app to be utilized further because it's in Ukrainian and in Polish. Um, and for people just to help each other because food's not a privilege. Mm-hmm. It's not. And we seem to make it that way, and especially healthy food. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, look, the, the urban reality of kind of uh, any metropole of North America where people are earning quarter million dollars you know, a year – and uh, trying out every fancy restaurant that they can go to and spending, you know, without questions asked, 150 bucks on their guest check for, for one or two people at a table is the exact opposite of, um, of that reality. And the funny thing is, and I wonder how, how that came up in your, in your travels there, um, your work there. The funny thing is, I think, you know, before the war, uh, Ukraine was, was probably a pretty, enough people were pretty healthy. And had and access to abundance. Place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's funny to see how so quickly a place of abundance, uh, and as a, even a grower community, right? Isn't, aren't they the, the largest single yep. 
in the region, largest single grower of grain. Yep. Um, and and overnight. Yeah. <laughs> it all changes. It all changes. And you know, for my first time there, I was able to have some form of culinary as a culinary artist. I got to see the the food world, and they put such passion into it. These restaurants give you the incredible experience. Now, the fun part is no, I can't say fun part. The exciting part is is knowing the passion that's put into it, the, with the experience of the food and, and what's plated in front of you and the flavor profiles. But when the air raid comes during the day, mm-hmm. morning or whatever, if you have a little cup of coffee, when the air raid comes, you just put your food down, you walk into your, your bunker or whatever it be or run into it. Mm-hmm. But when you come back, the gas and everything's turned back on, they fire that same meal right back up That's for you. That's crazy. And they, it's, this it's is like, in Kiev or like anywhere it, you went? It, depending on what the martial law was, yeah. anywhere. Yeah, pretty much anywhere. This is what I've been reading about in a lot of news sources. Or not news sources, but more like editorialized kind of magazine-y type um, reportage from the region. Is that it is so bizarre that very quickly almost like it's become normalized oh, it's so normal. to live with the threat, but not be constantly threatened by it. That's right. It, it, it's so unique to see how um, the locals have adapted. Uh, when, and when an air raid, or air raid goes off, it's just some just tend not to even bother with it because if that's their time, the, the way it was described to me, if it's their time, it's their time. Right. It's like, oh, man, let's just let's get you a couple more hours or a couple more days. <laughs> it's interesting because, I mean, I grew up between East Africa and Canada, right? So uh, in 1992, we moved to Kenya and uh, and I lived under a dictatorship uh, through my early teens oh, wow. uh, before moving back here, going to university and all this stuff. Uh, and I actually almost went to George Brown. Uh, I was, I was uh, applying to chef schools around the world and I got into the spear... Uh, vineyard chef school uh, in Stellenbosch, wow. just outside of Cape Town, and I, I was so going to go there, and I don't know why. Something called me back to Toronto to George Brown. Relatively, I mean, I don't mean to diss George Brown, but uh, but it's a far cry from like cooking impala with you know ridiculously great wine from 1600s era, right. you know, old vines. Um, but yeah, I came back here, and then you know, I I had. Uh, I worked in a few kitchens and I decided that it's not the life for me because I, I didn't see the creative control from the entry level and that whole critique of like the restaurant system and working your way up from line cook, you know, to chef is, was a pain to me. I was like, oh, I'd rather just start a restaurant at some point. And then, you know, it's a bit, a bit too arduous for me, even though I, I'm a mean, mean chef, like I cook great stuff. <laughs> um, but all that to say, the Kenyan experience, you know, and then when I was there, uh, even as a teen, I filmed some documentaries in, in various slums and I, I saw this sort of duality of, of life in, you know, in these emerging market countries where you've got, you know, the richest of the rich just on the other side of the fence, right? And this is like a Bombay thing as well. I used to do business in Bombay right. and shocking, shocking um, realities. But these are places which, this kind of born culture, or at least for the last, you know, I don't know, Kenya, it's a bit new. Uh, slum life is new, but uh, countries that might have 50 or 100 years to kind of grow into this reality. Uh, it's so weird to hear of the Ukrainian example being like overnight, this kind of uh, reality hitting people and that they're getting normalized to the food scarcity, to the uh, being without access to opportunity immediately to the pausing of life, you know, all this stuff. And power. Yeah. And water. Yeah. The main essentials to life being eliminated. Right. Um, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. It's, it's great that you have a little uh, chefy experience behind you on that ladder. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's man. passion, right? That's where I I ran with that passion because, um, you know, running through the kitchen hierarchy, like having that regime is what gave me the respect because as military background, it gave me that ambition to get, earn my rank. Mm-hmm. So for, uh, to say, and as, uh, working my way up from the dishwasher all the way to the top as an executive chef, calling myself a creative uh, or a culinary artist. Now the plate's my canvas Yeah, and having that opportunity, just, I can relate to every single person in this world because, your palate's my business card. Yeah, not many people talk about this because there's been this like sensationalization in the in the culinary world in the last ten years with, or let's call it twenty years with the advent of food TV, especially in North America, right? Mm. 
uh, there's this this kind of like uh, fetishization of of the lifestyle with celebrity chefs uh, in North America and the um, and the end result rather than the process and the storytelling of the process of of the lifestyle of providing food is not necessarily told in mass media that, that often. Not much. Um, so it's really interesting because for every foodie I know, like people who consider themselves, you know, good cooks, uh, I don't see the commitment to that craft, you know, that, uh, that the professional, um, work requires of you. It's right. grueling to work in a kitchen. And, it really is. And to get past it, you have to learn so many things. Like, and, and we deal with that here at Startwell where I look for this kind of experience, hospitality experience, uh, amongst new hires because, you know that they're going to have a few um, different tricks up their sleeves, like uh, mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Working in in a kitchen, I think, necessitates your ability to be mindful and stay present and be aware. If you get a rush and you're just zoning out, you can't get it out of the door. That's right. And you'll get sprayed from the dishwasher and someone will catch you on fire <laughs> and God knows what's going to happen to you. You always have to watch, right? Yeah. Um, so there, there's that, there's the ability to just work under stress as well. And now whether that's sustainable in kitchens and all this, all this, this stuff to do with, um, the, the difficulties of, of, you know, mental fatigue and, and all that, but, um, but working under stress, especially with your military background or, or, you know, the My service training. background, your training. Yeah. You know, but that's where the strength and the strong will rise and that's where aces will come from. You know, right now I found it. So we have a kitchen called Blazing Kitchen. This is where most of our catering is coming out of. Here uh, in Toronto? Here in Toronto. We primarily do all film and television. So whatever Sylvester Stallone might have had yesterday, we, we produce the same meal for the person on the street. So the overture. So we're a zero waste facility. And this is where all, most of my food comes from for our, uh, our meal plan programs. But where I'm getting at is the ones that prepare these meals. It's Since COVID, it's mm-hmm. really hard to get that shining ace or that person that wants to actually work. I mean, from the dishwasher, yes, you're going to be doing dishes. But when it comes to the ranks in the kitchen, like I said, nobody wants to get squirted by the, the dishwasher. Nobody wants to pick up, you know, a, a pair of tongs uh, if, they're, if they're using a knife. Like there's – nobody wants to work anymore. And it's, it's really hurting the, the, the hospitality industry and it's just really blowing myself away because back in the day, people were struggling wanting to get into a kitchen. Right. You, so, like, given your experience of staging and going places, convincing people probably I to had let to. you pick like, up the knife. I'm a nobody. Right. Right. Teach me. And that's where the inspiration came from me, learning everything that I can and surpassing it. And that's where I tell my students and, and the people that work next to me, alongside me, I want you to grow. I want mm-hmm. you to be the best shining little star that you can. But, uh, yeah, it really throws me off to see how the things have changed in the workforce. And um, it's unfortunate, even if you're paying them. Right. And even if what, it's a competitive wage. It's so interesting to hear your perspective on this because, you know, as part of our other series gathering, we've been talking to people from all different angles of supporting teams. Some of them are professional recruiters from outside of organization. Some of them are internal recruiters. Right whether it's technical recruiters recruiting engineers for a software company or whether it's administration positions, uh, any position of any salary. And this is like I was – until we, we kind of started this series, I hadn't myself done a survey of uh, pay scales in Canada, you know, uh, probably since 2000 – I don't know when it was. Oh, it was when I got married. I was looking for a job. 2014. I was an entrepreneur, and then I was like, the startup I had was pretty cool. It was like a Netflix for India before Netflix was in India. Wow. And I built the whole thing, went to Bombay to license films, spent every last dime of my of my other money from my other ventures on it. I uh, did a deal with Virgin. So it was like, there was all this like great stuff in that story, but it ultimately wasn't going anywhere. And I was getting married, and I had no money in my pocket. And I was like, I first time ever, kind of, I need a job, you know, since right. my early culinary days. And, uh, and I got a job working for IBM, which was just like so the opposite of me in many ways. Very, very corporate job. But at that point, when I was looking at other jobs, you know, it looked like the kind of glass ceiling in Canada, not long ago, like 10 years ago, was like 120 grand, 140 grand maybe. If you're not a finance guy, you know, with your making money off of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it seems to have doubled mm-hmm. or more. Right. It- <laughs> 
<laughs> it's, it's shocking. <laughs> Less work and more money. It's- and part of the things that I'm hearing from all of these, these recruiters and people that we're talking to on the Gathering podcast is that even if the salaries are massive and people are getting signing bonuses, like they're going to pay a recruiter three months of salary up front um, as a commission. The commission is based off of someone sticking around for six months in the job. So the recruiter is going to make three months. They're also so that the per, the employer is going to pay three months as a commission, and they're going to place nine months six already months. there. Yeah, and um, and even then, the person signing is looking, especially in engineering jobs in Canada, they're looking for bonuses. Right. And a weird thing is that we're we're experiencing so many things, of course, with our labor market, but like. Like for the software guys, they're getting poached by companies all around the world because everyone's woken up to the reality that Canada has a good knowledge sector employee base. So you have like all these recruiting companies that are across the country, but many in Toronto, that are being hired by U.S. firms to hire Canadian talent. Keep them here. They're working remotely. But then they're getting another three months of bonus up front as a signing bonus. So people are – I think what what I've been hearing is that – the surreality of the work versus the recompense, they don't add up. And right. it's so surreal to even the employees that they're constantly now of a mindset that something better is around the corner. So even if they get a job, they get their bonus. They're getting paid a lot of money. They think that something's waiting for them. Something's waiting. And then, so then there's, of course, we've got the side hustle culture emerging. We've got companies like... Great companies, but they're promoting it thinking that it's like an employee benefit to say, yeah, we'll, we'll be cool with you doing something else on the side. And, you know, I was talking to someone the other day and I was like, uh, on that podcast, and I was like, I wouldn't have time to do a side hustle. In fact, I had like three, four different businesses when I started Startwell and I killed them all. Right. I pulled a plug on a 60,000 subscriber podcast that I was running. Um for my record label, Indian Electronica, I, I killed the whole server. I let the domain name expire. I said goodbye to that. A big part of my life because I needed to focus. Congratulations. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that idea of sacrifice in order to focus, right, is maybe that's something that's like people generally don't have. But um, yeah, it's... They de- can learn from that though. Right. Right. Especially if a story that you can share. Yeah. Oh, the many, many stories. (laughs) As an entrepreneur, I can only imagine. The sacrifices. But, you know, you've you've triggered a point where uh, discussing the food industry and and when it comes down to having brick and mortars in restaurants, you know, it's great that I can have my name on restaurants. It's great that you can have that storefront and rely on the foot traffic and your staffing and stuff. Um, And creating a menu that's subjected to what the liking of that audience would be has thrown me off because I felt that through that pandemic, through the pandemic, um, gave me a whole new way of looking at things because people want to enjoy an experience. Mm-hmm. And going into restaurants, I'm always disappointed. I'm the first guy that walks right into a kitchen and, and shakes whoever's in charge's hand and take a kneel and say, give me your business card, put something on my plate, give yeah. me a reason to come back yeah. and make something that I can't make. Yeah, exactly. But what it's come down to- I left to, my house for this. Well, yeah. And I'm going to be now dropping double the price. Yeah. Right. If I'm going to be dropping two, $300 a person, you know, but that's for some great wine or whatever it be, give me that whole experience. But now I've changed my, my model. So speaking of other jobs and side hustles, mm-hmm. uh, I created the catering agency where, uh, you, you have the chef's experience. So I come into your home and I now have an incredible partner, uh, Rob Rainford, Chef Rob Rainford, who's uh, licensed to grill. He's like the Food Network star. Okay. And we both have, we, we complement each other on two different aspects and it's wonderful how we, we work together, but we're able to come into your home, give you that whole experience, bringing the molecular gastronomic techniques, bringing science to food, giving you that whole culinary vision of uh, how your food should be, where mm-hmm. it comes from and the story behind it. But that's what that's what's needed right now. People need to start exploring them within themselves how to cook. And I'm just bringing all this back into um, where we're at with this because people forget how to cook. People right. are relying on t- everything's turned takeout, delivery, takeout, delivery. Get back into the kitchen. Start utilizing and learning where food comes from and mm-hmm. how it's going to make your life and in, in happier. And how to be able to share that with your wife or whoever it is, because. Cooking, breaking bread at that table is where it all happens, right? And that's how we communicate. It's great that we can sit here solo listening and watching this podcast, but imagine being able to share that with so many other people 
over bread, breaking mm-hmm. bread, I should say. But yeah, so the catering agency has been a really wonderful takeoff on to sh- uh, ex- exposing our talents and sharing the the excitement through food again because mm-hmm. people have forgotten about it. Like, and I'm noticing all my restaurateurs and people that if you're not well established already, you're not flipping those tables. You're relying on that little machine going off saying we have a takeout or we have a delivery waiting to be picked up. So there's two anecdotes actually, and I and I, I'm, I was remiss to think, and I apologize to if they are listening, but I, I, I there were two different uh, podcast episodes that we did actually with food people that I forgot about in the beginning when I said we haven't talked to any chefs. So to Len Senator from the Depener, I apologize. Uh, that's great. Uh, and of course, to the guys from Ascari, Eric and John. Yeah, they were on the podcast a while ago. Um, but the both of those are, are interesting kind of responses. Like like Len's whole thing uh, with the Depener was that it was it was like he started it as just to get people around food together, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then of course things got difficult with his landlord, and there was some some I issues know. to do with the space. All the story, right? Um, but also I think, you know, leading into the pandemic, it probably was like a big prompt for him to kind of like take a pause and say, Hey, wait, it was, it, it was time. Right. And he wanted to write his book and he wanted to, to take a pause from, from all this stuff. And I know he's coming back strong, you know, I think he's in Kerala right now or Tamil Nadu or something, but like the, the idea of getting people around the table and, and unfortunately the individuality and individualism of the pandemic, you know, I think kind of for some people kind of push them into a more insular lifestyle, you know, and away from that like common table familia kind of vibe. Yeah. But for a lot of people, I think there's a renewed interest in like family style and sharing in dinner parties. In, there is. Right. And you're probably seeing that with this catering thing. Is Why, that, eyes wide open. Yeah. And people are probably like, like teach me, like part of it is like cook for me. Yeah. The but the other is teach me. I want to, we, we can watch TV and try and copy a recipe, but you being here is like yeah. leveling us up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I, it, it really excites me too, and especially when you get the youth. When you get the youth sitting in front of you and that just sort of really inspired, you give them that little technique, you give them the job, mm-hmm. and they're, which was technically not supposed to be engaging, but now they're all involved. And now yeah. they just want to say, wow, what's next? And that's where recipes that are developed. One of the cool things that came out of the pandemic too, on the Ascari tip, uh, and we actually, I worked with them, uh, Eric and John on this was early on in the pandemic, they realized that like they were feeling they they were really sad that like the restaurants, the rooms were closed. Yeah. Uh, they're really sad because they, they, everyone in the business knows it's about the experience, right? You really want people to the, the, the din of the room and you read the energy of the people as they're eating and you feel great from that. Uh, and you know that you've done a good job and they're having fun. They missed that. And so very early they started their like dinner kits. So they were kind of like, I think they tried two different models. One was ingredients with the recipe and the other one was pretty much a pre-cooked, ready to reassemble kind of meal. Maybe you do one, two things like bake the bread, yeah. but the, the curry is made. Uh, and we worked with them on a couple of videos um, that were instructional videos. And what I found, which was really interesting is that the people who watched the videos were more into the videos than, than assembling the thing they were like so engaged with the chef showing them how to put it together right. that they didn't want to watch and do it or do it after watching it. Watching it was enough. Yep. So that was kind of scary to me because that kind of harkens on this like food as entertainment versus food as an experience thing. Um, and again, it might just be an output of, of like food TV, food network, whatever. Uh, sensationalizing. That's another thing is about Food Network and, and what's out there in the food world. It seems to be this repetitive, what's safe to put on to screen. And that's where it's blowing my mind because right now I'm in front of all the networks. I, I, I attend the uh, real screen and uh, I, I pitch all these great shows, these concepts, especially Food Rescue Hero traveling on the world and being able to support and create uh, meals for people that are in devastation or that are in need. And it's really hard for networks to say, oh, well, we're, it's a really edgy, you know, it's, we're so used to everyone watching what competition shows. Yeah. They're like Anthony Bourdain's dead, man. But that's, that's the history. That's, that's the part of a chef's life. That's what, that's yeah. what's entertaining. Oh, totally. Right. So take it to YouTube. Take it to YouTube. So I'm being told now. Honestly, it's, it's a tricky thing because like, yeah, you, you don't want to have to do everything. 
then that's what the value of the network is, is support, you know, the creative process with the production and the distribution. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing so much amazing, great content being self-produced because of the same frustration in every industry. Um, and YouTube is about, is going through this transition in terms of its user base and its global reach now. Like what's interesting is, you know, the, the vlogger culture Mm -hmm. was started kind of around like New York and it was, um, it was, let's call it, I don't know what, six, seven, eight years ago, a lot of people doing like self, you know, selfie videos, essentially sharing their day on camera. And then that spread a little bit throughout North America. A lot of it was around this like consumer culture. So people reviewing, doing unboxing videos, reviewing their, their, um, tech that they want for their whatever projects. Um, and people watching that because they're thinking of buying the same thing. And then it's spread. And YouTube right now, the biggest YouTube user base is in India. And not just passive user base, but active user base. Wow. Like the number of people who are actively vlogging and creating content as serialized content to publish on India in India is, is the largest in the whole world. Never do. And their audience as well. Of course. So it's very interesting to watch this because it's kind of like a, th- a lot of these people are growing up with YouTube as their TV because there was no terrestrial TV network That's right. in India. Mm-hmm. Well, there was, but it was like three channels. Like UTV, who we used to work with for my my Get Filmy startup, the, the Netflix of India. Um, UTV, which got bought by Disney, was like channel two. And there was like four channels, you know, eventually. One of them was a state channel. And you could only get it in like one state or something. Right. So it's, it's an interesting time, I think, to share these stories online, uh, especially because you've got that global reach and, and, and I think the message is global. Mm. It's so really interesting that you're sharing that with me. Thank you. Because, again, as we bring this together, I, I'm a one-man show thinking of ideas. I film everything I pretty much do for my own vlogging aspects, but I never put it on to – Never publish it. No. Not really. I mean, some of it's on my, you know, on my Instagram, Chef Jire Gordon, and I get it gets out there snippets of it. But the idea of sharing a real message is mm-hmm. and sticking to that message is what's key. So it's something where I can learn from, it. and I'm, I will be asking questions <laughs> <laughs> for sure. We'll help you with that. Mm-hmm. It was awesome spending some time chatting. Yeah, I appreciate you. I think uh, I think we should definitely do a follow up session and cool. do like roundtables. And if you're up for participating in this Always. sort of stuff. It was a oh, pleasure, man. Yeah, thank you. And we'll have you in to do some food stuff at Startwell. I think okay. some of our hey, audience... Know, sky's the limit. Yeah, It man. really is. Like, there's no limitation here. It's just all a matter how far we can take our minds together. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wicked, man. Cheers. Pleasure.